Hello, I'm Kathy Shagrin. I'm Stacia Matten. And I'm Mary Osborne. Nestled among the beauty of bright green cornfields, family farms, and the gentle rolling hills of west central Illinois is the small rural community of Monmouth. Lots of famous and infamous people have lived in Monmouth. Wyatt Earp was born here. Ronald Reagan attended grade school in town while his father sold shoes at Colwell's department store. Serial killer Richard Speck called this area home for a time. And actress Gladys Gale and Congressman Montgomery Rice were born and raised right here in the Maple City, too. Monmouth boasts Monmouth College and the Monmouth Zippers. It also has the distinction of being the birthplace of the women's fraternity movement. Our monthly program, which is generously sponsored by the Buchanan Center for the Arts, will feature a true tale from our past. So we invite you to sit back and listen as we learn more about the town we love. This is Prairie Tales. Hello, Prairie Tales fans. This is Mary Osborne. April means the beginning of baseball season, and we have a special episode to commemorate its opening. It is my pleasure to introduce Tom Best, who has joined us to speak about the history of the earliest baseball teams in Monmouth. Now retired, Tom was a seventh grade social studies teacher in the Monmouth Roseville School District for 34 years. He also taught in the education and history departments at Monmouth College for over 25 years, where he loved training prospective social studies teachers for the classroom and teaching the complexity and importance of the Civil War, as well as the inspirational life, tragic assassination, and film depictions of Abraham Lincoln. Tom's particular passion for local history is what leads him along contemplative walks and guided tours of cemeteries to opportunities such as today, where he will share his insight and excitement related to the history of the Maple City. For myself, baseball is far more than a game I enthusiastically played as a child. Today, you can find me at the Warren County Library, spinning through microfilm collections of century-old newspapers, searching for long-forgotten box scores of games between the Monmouth Maple Cities and teams such as the Joliet Convicts or the Autumnal Coal Palaces. Or you might catch me at home examining a faded black-and-white photograph of an early ball player or ballist striking an impressive pose in an ill-fitting baggy uniform. These primary sources and what they reveal I hope to share in a pair of upcoming books about the late 19th and early 20th century baseball teams which once called our Maple City home. My inspiration for this labor of love began years ago when Monmouth College historian and friend Jeff Rankin told me a hard-to-believe story. Our city once sported a professional minor league team, the Monmouth Browns. And not just once, but twice in 1909 and 1910, our Browns hosted exhibition games against the Chicago Cubs. Next, about three years ago, a family section friend of mine at Burlington Bees Games, one Bill Anderson, pulled out an antique postcard he knew I would love to see. The card's handwritten notations regarding the stern-looking and muscled baseball player, incompletely identified as just Welch, described him as having played second base for the 1912 fourth-place Monmouth Browns of the Central Association. At first, I thought I might find enough information to learn of Welch's first name and locate where this photograph was taken. I didn't. But that disappointment only enticed me to learn far more. So I researched and wrote down my evolving thoughts. Eventually, I had sufficient Brown's Tales to write a series of articles for the Warren County Genealogical Society's newsletter and deliver a lecture at the Warren County History Museum. Was I done then? Not even close. A kind local man, Milo Sprout, allowed me to handle and copy an unblemished scorecard from the first memorable Browns vs. Chicago Cubs exhibition. 
Kellen Henriksen, then director at the Warren County History Museum, beckoned me one day to see an astounding document. Before me was the 1910 contract of Brown's infielder, Hosea Siner, stipulating his purchase to play with the then Boston Doves of the National League. On another blissful day, Wanda Prothero, a descendant of Lester Lund, another Browns player, enlightened me with her stories and a photograph Lester had saved. By last October, I believed I was finished with my book, a monograph principally about the Browns. But serendipity struck again. It seemed that Cleo, the muse of history, appeared in new revelations. Never having discovered the name of the ball player I early mentioned named Welsh, whom I had since learned was really named Welch, another Burlington Bees family section friend of mine, whom we call Running Dave, called me up and said he knew Welch's first name. It was Harry. But more than that, Harry Welch had taken over coaching the Monmouth College baseball team in the spring of 1914. That might not seem like much to interrupt my final steps towards publication, but these discoveries led me to more expansive research into Welch's life, along with some unforgiving thoughts of what else had I missed. Over the past holidays, after many more days at regional archives and searching online resources, I described my expanding work to my wife Pam. I told her that my research was now yielding a book of at least 400 pages. She advised me, oh, let's better say admonish me, that much research needs to be shared over two books. I agree with her wisdom, and now two volumes are being finished. The first volume, chock full of rarely heard stories about her earliest baseball teams, who played between the end of the Civil War and the early 1900s. Those teams being the Clippers, Athletics, White Stockings, Blues, Mechites, Spuds, and the Maple Cities. The second volume will lead readers through the captivating days of the Browns. Allow me now to share some short tales from this latter volume. The Monmouth Browns were born of a dream of a steely-eyed and successful businessman who also happened to be the mayor of our city, John S. Brown. His vision was so well received by civic leaders and prideful citizens that they too eagerly joined in Brown's baseball enterprise. That quest began in 1907 with the formation of an unnamed independent baseball club and the building of a ballpark along the east side of South 11th Street. In 1908, after a successful season of the Independents taking on all comers, Brown and his directors were instrumental in the creation of a new minor league, the Illinois-Missouri League, or just the IM. The Browns played there for two seasons, winning the league title in 1909. Basking in that achievement, Brown was able to convince the more competitive Central Association to accept his franchise into their organization. There they played against teams such as the Burlington Pathfinders, the Cedar Rapids Rabbits, and the Muscatine Wallopers. Therefore, the Browns, respectfully named for their visionary, could proudly boast that their team had indeed put, quote, Monmouth on the map. I could tell you a myriad of tales about the Browns and Monmouth in this era of entertaining Chautauqua festivals on the Monmouth College campus, Rocky Doodle streetcars, moral struggles over the issue of liquor sales, and gasp, the playing of baseball on the Sabbath. But how about starting with one account of one of the Browns' most infamous road contests? Any match against Galesburg could be expected to be eventful, but this game in their inaugural season of 1908 would be a memorable one, but not for the right reasons. Galesburg popular manager John Grogan was stepping down, and the locals wanted to win one for him in style. The Mammoth fans who traveled to Galesburg for Grogan's retirement had other intentions about how Grogan would remember his last day. Some taunting from a host of belligerent Monmouth fans regarding Grogan being a dirty player eventually went too far. A near riot broke out as Grogan went into the stands to confront one of the abusive cranks, 
or a rude spectator. Even the local boosters running the Mammoth Review could not refrain from offering their own maligning critique of the fans. It was a disgraceful affair. Yet the most embarrassing aspect of the melee came with the threatened arrest of both team president John Brown and the famed Mammoth magician William Nicole or the Great Nicola. In Nichols' defense, it was alleged that during the fight, while being held down by a Knox County deputy, that another Galesburg player, who came to the defense of Grogan, struck the famed handcuff king in the eye. The Galesburg Evening Mail saw events somewhat differently. Given Mama's pervasive rowdyism and the personal abuse of Grogan that day, their writers insisted that Grogan was justified in leaving his coaching box to confront the boisterous hecklers. The Evening News sought to correct some information by crediting Mayor Brown with trying to calm things down. Yet Nickel was still branded as one of the principal provocateurs. The newspaper stated that Nickel had egged on the thuggish crowd, specifically with his shouts that Grogan had only gotten what he deserved from the Brown supporters. Grogan thus insulted charged Nickel. Grogan was next given, quote, a vicious kick full in the face without warning, unquote, by the magician. The stunned Grogan fell back. Heine Rossback, a Galesburg player or a local fan, came to Grogan's rescue and gave Nickel a smash to the head, thus causing the magician to cease his attacks. With the help of the umpire and a local deputy, peace was finally restored. The accused Mammoth ringleaders were escorted to the ticket office for a period of so-called probation. Assured that no further violence was likely, the instigators, including Nickel, were released with no charges filed. The president of the IM League later investigated the matter, but took no additional disciplinary action. Despite this unfortunate episode, the Browns did celebrate some alternatively far brighter moments. Most famously, through John Brown's business connections with the Chicago Cubs ownership, he enticed the talented major leaguers to come to play his Browns in an exhibition game. Monmouth was led that season by their well-built yet quiet player manager, John Jack Corbett. His later historical accolades included managing one of the shortest games in baseball history, around 30 minutes, and designing the modern peg-held infield bases still used today. Among his team of just 11 other signed ball players who endured a 130-game schedule that season were pitchers Charles Dell Dallaire and Omer Hargrove and their steady battery mate, Walter Hub Hart, outfielder August, or Gus Williams, later nicknamed Gloomy Gus, who eventually played five seasons with the St. Louis Browns, and infielders Paul Germany Ermsker and Moxie Merton Mexell, both who boarded at a house at 508 South B Street. That spring, a lean crowd was predicted by the local press. That is, if the Browns players would smartly avoid the dangers of smoking, drinking too much, and above all, rowdy behavior. Sadly, the Browns got off to a mediocre start, sometimes suffering, it was said, from poor play, or the old hoodoo. Yet frequent large crowds gave the team the inspiration they needed to stay competitive against the likes of the dominant Beardstown Possums. By midsummer, as local lips flapped about the recently notorious corset thief who was pilfering ladies' undergarments from city homes, the conversation of fans turned to a nearly unbelievable rumor. Could it be that the Chicago Cubs, who had won the last two World Series, were coming to town to play the Browns in an exhibition game? Speculation became fact when it was announced that the Cubs would play here on the afternoon of August 16th. By game day, at least 1,000 50-cent grandstand tickets had already been sold. That's about $13 today. Makeshift outfield bleachers made of barrels and planks had been set up for spectators at 25 cents a space. 
With businesses closing at 2.30 p.m., the crowd was swelling to perhaps 4,000 spectators. The late arriving crowd, some traveling some distance by train, gathered along the inside of the outfield fence and near the foul lines, both likely restrained by a rope barrier. A fancy scorecard with pre-printed lineups further excited the fans. Could it be that the Cubs lineup stated that they would get to see their major league favorites such as pitcher Three Fingers Mordecai Brown and the famed double play combination of Tinkers to Evers to Chance? However, in such hype exhibitions, the promised lineup rarely played more than a short time, if at all. Instead, the Cub reserves, or better, the Chicago subs, were the players the fans witnessed on the field. Such degradation of the Cubs' management was a sarcastic interpretation of one of the most talented sports writers in American journalism, Charles Dryden. He was covering the game that day for the Chicago Examiner. But more importantly to this narrative, Dryden was also a Monmouth boy and a future member of the writer's wing in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Dryden, despite his earlier knock in the Cubs, treated his hometown more glowingly, speaking favorably of the fans' overwhelming support of the Browns, as well as the, quote, chivalry and beauty of Monmouth. The Browns first drew the cheers of the overflow crowd when they broke out to a one-to-nothing lead. Monmouth's third-best starting pitcher, Conrad Dutch Bessier, was given the honor of starting the game because, as of late, he had been throwing very well. In fact, he proved such by holding the Cubs scoreless for the first three innings. But the Cubs eventually got on the scoreboard in the top of the fourth frame when they posted four tallies. Most of their runs the result of shaky defense by the anxious Browns. Yet, the Cubs never scored again. Monmouth moved one run closer in their half of the fourth inning with an inside-the-park home run by shortstop Eddie Brown. His monstrous clout was grandly praised as a soaking of the spheroid. With the game still stunningly close, the Cubs, who had decisively won the last two World Series, notching eight wins and only one loss, turned to one of their best relievers. This late-inning specialist, Irv Higginbotham, kept the Browns' comeback in check by sending five strikeout victims back to the dugout and surrendering only one inconsequential hit. In an ironic twist of fate, Higginbotham came back to Monmouth in 1910 to pitch for the Browns, even facing his old Cub teammates in a rematch. While Windy City reporters downplayed the significance of the too-close score, 4-2, to two, they were fair in giving credit to two Browns players. Hub Hart's defensive heroics from behind the plate, including throwing out three Cubs base dealers with, quote, perfect pegs. So impressed were the Cubs with Hart's handling of the limelight, they called upon the Browns' backstop to catch for them in their first game of a postseason exhibition series against their Southside rivals, the White Sox. Pitcher Charles Dallaire, who entered in relief, caught the Cubs' attention by holding them to two hits over the final five innings. His performance was celebrated as an 18-carat variety. The Monmouth Review was expectantly praiseworthy of their Browns, stating that not only was the attending crowd satisfied with everything, but insisted that the Browns had been more lucky with all but one Cub run linked to a fielding era, the Review could have had a different story to tell. As noted earlier, the Cubs returned a year later in 1910 for another exhibition. Having been chagrined by last year's near upset, the Cubs decided to show more of their dominance. This time, nearly half of their starters played. Yes, the Browns lost, but they nearly concluded the game with a rousing historical comeback. With a score of 5-4, to four, narrowly separating this D-level minor league team from the favored Cubs, in the bottom of the ninth inning, with but one out and the tying run on base, the Cubs stared at the prospect of a shocking defeat. 
Oh, but what if the final two Browns batters could have delivered hits instead of outs? Let's close now with that what if. The Mammoth Browns, like hundreds of other small cities dotting the landscape of pre-World War I America, was a proud but short-lived baseball franchise. Local citizens felt themselves fortunate to field a professional team while also achieving some notoriety. Ultimately, such small cities could not meet both their league's required attendance figures and financial obligations. Such baseball clubs folded. Yet with ever-growing digital archives of early baseball games, reproductions of fading photographs, oral history collections, and the dedication of baseball historians who will not allow the fog of history to cover up the past, the legacy of teams such as the Browns can still be revealed with true wonder to interested listeners and readers. Thank you. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. Special thanks to Jeff Rankin for providing the content of this episode. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. For Stacia Matten, I'm Mary Osborne. For Mary Osborne, I'm Kathy Shagrin. And for Kathy Shagrin, I'm Stacia Matten. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie, and you too might hear a tale.